Growth Pod is brought to you by Genero, a leading growth agency in the Nordics. We interview marketing experts, business leaders, and entrepreneurs to uncover the stories and strategies behind profitable growth. Today I'm joined by serial entrepreneur Fredrik Skante, who is a co-founder and CEO of Funnel. Funnel is a Swedish SaaS company that's raised over 120 million euros to build a leading marketing data hub that helps teams around the world better understand their marketing performance. Welcome to the show, Fredrik. Thank you. So uh, really excited to have you on and to start digging into kind of the, your background, uh, Funnel's background, and your, this kind of incredible growth journey that you're on headed towards an IPO, I, I, I presume. But uh, before we get into all of that, could you quickly for our listeners explain what is it exactly that Funnel does? And uh, what kind of companies or teams should be using Funnel? Uh, absolutely. So we work in intersection of marketing and data. So digital marketing now has essentially become marketing with all the big budgets being digital. And that's great. Now marketing for the first time can really be accountable for, for driving revenue in a company. But to do that, you need to have a platform in place to collect all your data and to be able to measure and put it together and see how things are going and that's what we do um and it's both in advertisers in all different verticals um the digital marketing teams use us often they use us in conjunction with um, the more technical teams in the data warehouse team as well um, and at uh, media agencies that then in turn help their clients which are advertisers um, with their marketing data Okay, so it's both uh, companies, I presume, both smaller companies and also these uh, big enterprises are leveraging Funnel to um, to better, you know, to store and organize their data? Yeah, we serve pretty much every vertical and everything from small e-commerce companies to large, iconic, uh, new economy companies with, you know, tens of thousands of, of, of uh, employees. That's pretty, pretty exciting. And uh, I think... I was reading about the, as I was reading about funnel and kind of the background. One thing that was really exciting, interesting, I'd say, was that it was kind of a spinoff from another company that you founded, uh, Quaya, which is a Facebook advertising tool. Which um, at the time, I believe you processed one percent of all the spend on Facebook, um, which was pretty global spend. So that's that's pretty incredible. And you'd co-founded that company. You reached this, you know, elusive product market fit that everyone wants to get to. You were growing. Um, you'd raised money and you were growing very rapidly and still you decided to to take this uh, pivot and, and, and focus on funnel, which clearly was the right choice in in, uh, in in retrospect. But can you talk a little bit about that decision that led you to, you know, take that decision, even though you had something that was very successful on your hands, you decided to kind of risk it all or, or how, how did you think about that decision? Yeah, that's a good question. And um it was a very difficult decision, and as you said, so we, had, you know, we really believed in Facebook at the time. It was we were really early when Facebook advertising was quite unproven, but we thought Facebook would go the same journey as Google. Turned out that was the case. We built a, built a tool to specifically help sort of smaller advertisers um, with a tool, uh, make ads, optimize their ads, um, and had really really strong tractions with that, with thousands of customers, and. That whole category of a Facebook advertising tool was going to, you know, it looked like it was emerging to more of a social advertising platform to add other other um, verticals like um, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. And uh, that's what most of those companies did. We, we you know, we really wanted to be a large, a large company. Um, and we spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and... We also spoke a lot to our customers and what we heard from them is that Facebook actually was really important to them and they wanted us to do focus on that. But Facebook, we knew from the beginning, we're also building these tools. Um, it didn't feel like the right setup. There was a big market created, but it felt like, you know, just creating ads on Facebook over time, Facebook should really, you know, be best set up to do that well. And so we wanted to find a space that was part of this new market that was created but where the large companies like google and facebook didn't give something away for free um, 
And um, so we spend a lot of time talking to our customers to understand kind of what are really your problems and are there any sort of unsolved problems? And what they kept coming back to was, you know, there's lots of companies that help us make ads and optimize ads. But when it comes to like figuring out how things are going, like my my P&L for my marketing and then being able to drill into that, everybody had a spreadsheet. We said, okay, that's interesting. And we couldn't find any company who was doing this. And we asked them, okay, if if we do it, will you buy it? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll buy it. <laughs> Just build it. Um, and we said, okay, you know, this this makes a lot of sense. Like we solved this problem, you know, at that time it was e-commerce companies, gaming companies, app companies that cared about digital performance, but we could see how this was going to get even larger. Um, so we decided then to do a pivot. And as you said, this was pretty late. Uh, in, in our development and um, but with, we, we did it with a lot of confidence and with a strong team in place and we said you know with that we're going to build this new feature where and we're going to quickly be able to find product market fit and and um, and do this that, that's interesting I think I remember someone saying something uh, that you know every time there's some kind of function or, or task that's performed by companies using a spreadsheet there's probably a business SaaS opportunity there to come in and replace that. Um, you mentioned product market fit. So you, you had this clear problem. You've identified this clear problem. You still had money in the bank um, to go ahead and start building this this new feature. Was it then just a matter of, okay, you built this, and as soon as you got it out, you launched it, showed it to customers, they said, yes, this was exactly what we wanted. Uh, you got to this product market fit. Or was it, um, how was what was the journey like to, to actually bringing it to market? Well, our expectation was it's going to take a year to build, and um, so and then we can launch it, and and then we're you know have product market fit and can can kind of can get customers to to just start using it and start growing. And our we defined a problem as I explained, and our our previous tool was for as the SME market for small advertisers for like a hundred dollars you could swipe your credit card and sort of buy it and that didn't exist in that space it was totally product-led and our expectation was that that was going to be the case with this product as well so uh, I think there are two things we learned so one is actually every new product that you launch you have to again search for product market fit and there is a process and it takes time <laughs> And so we thought it would take a year. It took two years. Like it took us like nine months to get a prototype out or, or like a beta out. And then, but then we actually spent over a year iterating until we really started to feel like, okay, now we have product market fit. So that took a bit longer than we thought. Now, the other thing that happened was we thought it would just be small companies because small companies, um, you know, they, they have the spreadsheet, large companies, they have BI tools. So they have this solved. Turns out the really, really small companies have bigger problems than reporting. <laughs> uh, but the mid-sized companies and even large, like really large enterprises, yeah, they had the BI tools um, and, and dashboards, but they couldn't get the data in there. So they were still sitting with a spreadsheet, even at like, you know, Fortune, 500 companies so that market was much larger than we thought and the opportunity with was with, with larger customers than we thought um so we sort of pivoted away originally um you know so so we thought that it was going to be the small customer the sme customers uh that we were going to serve um turns out they actually had bigger problems than reporting their, you know, their, their business wasn't working so well, but mid-sized and large companies, even though they had these BI tools, um, they couldn't get the data in. So they um, were still sitting with spreadsheets, even at Fortune 500 companies. And so the market was much larger than we thought. It was mid-sized and large companies that we could serve. Um, and um, so then we ended up having more of a sales-led motion um, to them. Uh, so we changed our go-to-market. And uh, that turned out to work really well. And um, uh, uh, then, then we sort of really uh, saw their business take off. That that's really interesting because I um, I feel that there's someone said that that you know 
go to market problems are typically um, or uh, product market fit problems are typically misdiagnosed as go to market problems. So how were you thinking about those very two different stages? Was there a clear moment, any clear metrics where you said, okay, now we've got, you know, we've achieved product market fit, but maybe we just need to change from our original plan who we are going to market it to. Like, how were you thinking about those two things um, and, and not maybe letting them, you know, kind of confusing one for the other, if that kind of makes sense? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, but they, to some extent, they are a little bit interlinked. Uh, you know, if you go for an SME market, uh, then, you know, the product you need is has to be more out of the box. If you go uh, for, you know, an enterprise market, the product has to be more flexible and and you have to customize for each, each customer. So so they are somewhat interlinked, uh, but but in general, I think we were pretty good at saying, look, we don't have product market fit. We're going to do some go-to-market to get customers in, but we're going to wait with scaling until we, we really got good product market fit. And when you had reached that and you had kind of made, like you said, the market turned out to be much bigger than you had uh, anticipated, but this was still, you know, many, many years ago, did you already then have a sense of how big this market was going to be? Or, or how did you think about the, the potential and how did you then start calibrating, you know, the, the funding needs and so on uh, in accordance to that? Um, well, we, we never really, I mean, we thought that the market for this primarily originally was going to be e-commerce companies and media agencies. Um, gaming and app companies were a little bit different. Um, so we, we primarily are, for us, it was e-commerce companies and agencies, media agencies. You know, I, I remember investors asking us, what is the market size? We're debating it. Like for us, just that market was huge uh, and because it's global um, and uh, there's a huge opportunity. So we were never worried about it. And so we just, we just kept building and selling into them and at that time sort of like 40 percent of all advertising spend was online and you know the e-commerce were spending all their money online uh gaming app companies but the large budgets tv tv budgets were offline on tv and you know large brands were dabbling with social media but then the shift came you know and it went really fast over a number of years from 40 percent to 70 percent and now TV budgets are on YouTube and, you know, um, Netflix is going to launch uh, 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 advertising-based system and so on, right? So, you know, the, and then suddenly it's every company. And so that market has gradually become much, much larger for us. So you were, uh, timing-wise, it turned out to be pretty pretty fortunate timing for you that uh, you were kind of um, in the early stages of, of this market as it was this need as it was really beginning to take off. Yeah, and at the, absolutely. I mean, at the time, the, you know, global digital advertising spend was maybe 150 billion and now it's over 600 billion. I mean, so, you know, you just get pulled with this market, um, which is great. I want to go back to, because uh, you said something interesting, which was uh, back, back in the quiet days, uh, you realize that, you know, marketing or the transition that kind of happened with digital marketing was that marketing was now for the first time kind of being accountable for driving revenue. Um, and, and you've been kind of working in or at least observing and being very close to this whole digital marketing space for, for well over a decade. Um, how would you say that it has changed from, you know, going back to the early days, there's the famous quote, half of my advertising spend is wasted. I don't know which half it is. Then Google came as the first big player and told advertisers or advertisers and you know agencies that we can show how much you get. We can show the actual ROI of every single dollar that you spend. Um, so could you kind of give an overview? I know this is a broad question, but could you give a kind of an overview of the the, the digital marketing landscape, how it's evolved, and maybe also what do you see in the future? Because there are you know it, it, it's changing from regulatory, technical, technological reasons. So how do you kind of see the past and the future of this this uh, digital market that's grown to be, like you said, incredibly huge, hundreds of billions of dollars globally? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, there was a huge shift. I mean, what part of originally what made, made digital so fantastic was um, that 
both within the platforms, like a platform like Google or a platform like Facebook, Google with the search keywords or Facebook with the audiences you could you could target to a much dig- bigger degree because they had so much data. Um, and then you could measure, I mean, with, you know, an analytic software on your web, you could see basically where the clicks came from and what was driving your traffic. So, you know, and then you could put your money there and, you know, that that made a lot of sense. So that, that was pretty transformational. If you compare that to like running a TV ad, running print, it's quite hard to to really understand, you know, where, where, where am I getting the best return? Um, now, no, with mobile tracking being greatly reduced with the changes that, that Apple has, has done and with third-party cookies now, you know, more and more uh, being restricted, there is actually now sort of a going back slightly to that previous world. I wouldn't say that we're we're going back all the way. You you can still see what what traffic comes into your web and so on, but but you have less information, and as a result, uh, but at the same time, all these platforms that you use have much more data than than you know like a TV station. TV station, you know, you know when you ran your ads and and you might get some sort of offline uh, you know reporting on what the audience was, but in these platforms, you know you lots and lots of data um, and um, and you have lots of platforms and you have a lot of other systems with data so you have much more data but you actually now have to do more work to put that data together and also not just use deterministic approaches to determining um, what the cause and effect of your advertising is but more prob- probabilistic or statistical um, methods, which, which is much harder, right? So um, already with digital marketing, it's much more analytical and much more technical than uh, regular sort of more brand-oriented or direct response sort of offline marketing. And you have a pretty big tech stack. And now you're taking that one step further. You have to understand algorithms and all the stuff. So it is a really big change for marketing. And and it it is actually a very very hard problem to to solve. There's no right answer, but we already know that like just looking at clicks didn't tell the whole story. If you have a channel that generates a lot of awareness, but you actually can't click on it, well, it's never going to give you any recognition for clicks, but it's going to drive awareness. So so we already knew it. Like, I mean, like take traditional TV, you know, if you're a digital business, you might still spend a lot of money on TV. Um, and so you still have to take these things in account. And now I think it's the time marketers are now recognizing they need to put together systems for doing this um, and and sort of more scientifically approach it. And that's a really big step for market. It, it, right, you said it's a big step. Do you think that this could, what do you think the impact will be on overall advertising effectiveness? Could this be a blessing in disguise as in marketers who could previously just rely, like you said, on attribution, these deterministic modeling now have to think about, which, as you mentioned, did not did not paint, did not take into consider the whole picture. It looked at short-term results um, mainly. So do you think that this could actually push the marketing industry into creating models that are more, so I would say, holistic and there could be actually a positive impact on overall uh, measurement and performance. Or how do you see this kind of playing out? Yeah, I think so. I, I think over time, but I think it'll take quite a lot of time. Um, and um, it, it's hard for the, you know, the advertisers to, uh, to understand what, what really works and what doesn't work with respect to measurement. Um, and so you need to build that capability partially in-house and then partially find really good vendors to help you with that, uh, I would say. Um, but I think it's going to push us forward, yes. And I think there's, you know, so much more data available now. So it's, it's possible to do things that weren't possible before. Uh, this may be kind of a leading question, but do you think that this is an opportunity for um, for a tool like Funnel 
where, where the companies or advertisers agencies are going to become even more reliant on, on these types of tools to better collect, analyze, understand their data and use that to make, make these decisions? Or how do you think of, you know, these big platforms like of Meta or Google, uh, they're obviously thinking about this as well, and they're coming up with their own tools and they don't want to be squeezed out. They want to, to, um, uh, they, they, they want to still get a lot of that piece of that pie. So how do you think this, this will play out in, in your kind of role in this? So, so I think the big platforms like Facebook and, and, and um, uh, Google and so on, you know, have a huge amount of data and are incredibly good at now optimizing advertising within their platform and are going to be the absolutely best at that. That's what partially why we didn't want to build an ads tool for, for that, for those platforms. I think they, they, they're going to own that. So I think, and, and they're keep driving it. And I think are, are keep driving performance, but going back to when funnel was originally started, like what you want is to look at all your data in all your systems and then make decisions and, you're going to want to do that in an impartial way. And, and, and so I think inherently it's hard for them even to do that because they all compete with each other. So they don't share each other's data and therefore they can't sort of make decisions about what works and what doesn't work with their competitors. And, and, and they probably, you know, you know, advertisers probably want something impartial anyway. So, um, and then going back to your question, you know, what, what, what does this mean for us? Well, you're going to need more algorithms and you're going to need more, um, you know, techniques to, to analyze um, your data and your performance, be it, you know, marketing mix modeling, be it sort of um, unified marketing measurement being using AI to do this. But the core to do any of those things is that you have all your data in a business-ready format so that it's available, it's cleaned, it's normalized, it's stitched together, and it's correct, and it works, and it's up-to-date to the minute. And and that's what we do. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we do is just becomes more and more important. Um, and more and, and it's going to be used in more and more ways. Yeah, th- I think that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Okay, let's let's transition from the big picture kind of uh, uh, macro or the market to uh, funnel. And one thing that I read that I thought was very interesting was your decision of funnel to get rid of bonuses and commissions. And um, I, I guess this was you know company wide, so that includes sales, which has you know conventional wisdom says salespeople need to be motivated with commissions or or somehow to to go out and close deals. So can you talk about what led you to make that decision and and what kind of results have you seen as a as a result of that? Absolutely. So one of the core culture values of Funnel is teamwork and collaboration. Um, and we felt like there was a little bit of distrust of sales in the company with respect to, well, they're just closing the deal to... <laughs> get the commission check, you know, and they're only focused on that. We also felt like, you know, they were the only teams in the go-to-market motion that were compensated with a with a bonus. Everybody else had a fixed salary. But in closing a deal, you had an account executive with a bonus. Uh, you had a solutions consultant and sort of pre-sales engineering um, and, and you had a you know a number of other roles. Maybe product was involved, and, and like these people were working you know late hours to close deals and help customers and do trials and and yeah, there wasn't really any difference in which one worked the hardest. I felt really ba- it was strange that then okay we closed the customer okay well now you know you get you get a bonus check to the AE and everybody else gets uh, gets an emoji in 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 Slack, um, and. What we boiled down to then is that we thought, you know, we don't feel like that actually with with a sophisticated sale like this is, it shouldn't be necessary. Um, you know, we want intrinsically motivated people who really want to do the right thing. And, and actually, it takes away sort of a lot of stress as well that you, you know, have to make your number to pay your mortgage and all the stuff. So, and we also found that 
there was a lot of squabbling about leads. You get let's watch leads and the comp plan and changes to the comp plan. And then, you know, like the economy slows down a little bit and it's harder to meet your numbers. And then like there's a big ask to change the comp plan. And it's like, okay, well, why do we like if she's sort of sort of pushing around so that everybody sort of makes their number, um, why don't we just pay people a proper amount of money? And again, this was not about saving money. I actually think we pay more for our sales organization because we pay them their full commission every month. And in most companies, sales people, I think maybe 70% of their of the quota is met. Um, so it's not about saving money, but it's about getting everybody folks in the same direction, everybody working with same sort of long-term incentives. Um, and so that's why we did it. Um, yes. It seems very, like a very thoughtful and reasonable decision. And, uh, like you said, you haven't, uh, you didn't do it to save money, so you haven't done that. Um, but what kind of impact have you seen on, you know, the, the numbers and also maybe the kind of qualitative, like how people are, you know, has it increased, uh, collaboration across, across the different, uh, functions? Yeah. So what, what people said was, um, you know, this is crazy, <laughs> especially in the U.S. I was that's crazy. You know, you're not going to be able to hire salespeople or good salespeople. Um, the really good salespeople you have are going to leave because they can make more money than somewhere else. Um, and the ones you have are going to be not motivated as a sell us. Um, and we haven't seen that play out. Uh, we've been able to attract really good salespeople. People, when you really speak to it, they, they think it made a lot of sense. Um, we have really high retention. We have really high retention across the company, but but we have really high retention in sales. Um, I, I would almost say it's the opposite. Like once people are used to the fact that they, you know, that they get get paid every month. Um, it's quite hard to go away to another company where they say, yeah, if you sell, you get a little more. Well, can I trust? Yeah. So, so I think that, that it works pretty well. Um, the whole squabbles about re leads doesn't happen a funnel. There's none of that. No talk about commission plans. If we change sales strategy, everybody gets online. What can we do? move forward when COVID hit and there weren't very many leads. People said, can I work as customer success? Can we just churn? You know, so all that thing really worked. Um, now, that having been said, you know, and I, I sometimes talk about this and I talk about intrinsic motivation and I talk about, you know, how like, you know, the research says that, you know, if you're going to perform a complex task and you give people a, a bonus, then actually they perform worse than, you know, uh, uh, and and in small repetitive tasks they perform better. So, you know, all of that. Uh, now, with that, almost you know, people are really interested. I get lots of feedback when I talk about this as conferences and other things, and a lot of people. Are, but I think relatively few people do this, and it's a big change. I don't think any everybody should run away and do this. I think you should think really careful about it. You know, you can only do so many things different than everybody else. Uh, for us, it was important. We did it. I would say requires it requires I would say more management um, bonuses for salespeople is a little bit self-managing um, and I think you have to sort of be a, a little bit tighter in how you manage your teams but you probably should be anyway and this sort of I think drives that um, and I think the, the good the good things coming out of it are are, are very good um, so yeah have you made any other kind of um, you know going against conventional wisdom did this experience made you look at some other things that are you know commonly held beliefs or standard practices and go like hmm maybe we should do that we should rethink that as well or is it more of a like you said you can only do so many things that, you can only be different in so many ways um, so ha have you made any other kind of yeah a convention defying decisions I mean, I, I think what we what we have done is we have a clear view of what our culture is, and you know we really believe in our culture, and we 
spend a lot of time talking about it and we sort of live up to it. Now, but what I what I would say is that um, in general, you can build like a a strong culture, and I think that's important. But you know, if to build a, a culture or a way of working that's very very different from everybody else, I, I think there are advantages because it gels the company and everybody sort of likes that you look different and, and it, it's a bit of a longing. But it actually makes it also really hard to hire people into the company because, and especially sort of more senior people, because they're used to operating in a sort of modern, certain way of working. And um, and when they come in, then it sort of goes, lots of things they do goes culture, cu- counter to the culture. And, and, and that actually makes it harder to sort of move fast, hire people and, and sort of things. So I, I think it should be very careful i think you should figure out the things that are really important to you and um and 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 do those different but otherwise there's also like a playbook that kind of works and probably where you want to innovate the most is with your product as opposed to with how you build a company um i think that would be my general guide that's interesting for some reason i've never thought of the fact that if you have a very distinct culture hiring seniors will become a huge bottleneck because you're asking people with decades of experience to come in and, and do something very differently. But that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, speaking of con- uh, culture and company building, you have a lot of work experience um, and, and you know study experience from the US and in, uh, and in Europe. So is there anything that you think that we as Europeans or you know people from the Nordic countries should learn from the Americans about or the North Americans about building building companies and and vice versa is there anything kind of like lessons that you've been able to 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 take from uh kind of mix the best of get the best of both worlds Um yeah I mean I I think it's interesting so you know, yeah. So I, I I spent about twelve years in the U.S. and I worked for for six years in in uh, in Silicon Valley, um, and um, that then and then I spent sort of seven years in Europe in in London before coming to Stockholm. And 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 when I came back and I you know, we sort of started this company, speaking to you know investors in Stockholm and. Um, they said, okay, it's great that you're starting a SaaS company, you know, looks like you have traction. So, you know, we'd be, you know, let's talk about the funding. And then, you know, what we think you should do is maybe run it for another year here in Europe. And then, you know, why don't you take the family and move back to San Francisco and, um, and, and sort of run the company from there because that's where everything is happening and it's the place to be and so on. Um, you know, and I remember... First of all, thinking like, you know what, I've actually worked there <laughs> and I know what it's like to be there and you're only talking about it. Uh, and I know that, you know, when you're there, you sit in an office park somewhere and you double down on what you do. The great engineers in Europe, especially in the Nordic countries in Stockholm, uh, they can help you build stuff. And, you know, I, I think the level of ambition is just that was just a low level of ambition. I think you can build a category defining global SaaS company based off a, a, a country like Stockholm. Um, just like, you know, 100, 150 years ago, um, companies like ABB or Ericsson or Volvo were, were you know, founded in, in, for example, Sweden and, and, and really conquered the world right so i want to get i want to come back to that right now that having been said yeah absolutely especially when we started like you know over 10 years ago there were there were lots of things that we weren't as good at in europe now as i said software development engineering i think we're actually quite strong it was more the sort of go-to-market aspects of SaaS, i think um that that we were a bit weaker with um and um for us we focused on you know originally with our product product led product led growth and so we spent a lot of time we spent a lot of time in silicon valley learning from others and so on and then we took it back and we sort of i think 
built the team and it worked really well. And then when we went into software sales, um, again, sort of we had to bring the playbook a bit to Europe. Um, I also think, you know, my, my background is sort of uh, product. And, you know, I, I think that Europe has been behind, uh, especially sort of 12, 13 years ago, was behind on product. I, I, I don't know if that's the case anymore. So, um, yeah, absolutely. There, there are things and, you know, that many things still, there are some cutting cutting edge um, things that are happening in Silicon Valley. Um, I think what I like about Europeans is I think they're a little more method to what we do and, and, and a little more long-term thinking um, and employees don't move around as much. Um, and, and, you know, that's great stability. Um, I remember, you know, one CEO was chatting with, based in, uh, in San Francisco and he said, look, we hire salespeople that come in um, you know, they, they work for, for six months, you know, uh, as, as a new account executive, and then they go across the street and work for New Relic, get another, you know, $40,000 in OT and, and, you know, that's like, that, that's crazy. I mean, we, you know, we still have the, for, you know, the original salespeople that we hired in the U S we, in Boston, we decided to put our office in Boston and not, not, and not in Stockholm. Sorry, sorry, not in, in San Francisco for for that very reason, um, and uh, but but particularly in in Stockholm, the same. Like uh, you know, we keep people much longer. It's interesting. It sounds like we're able to combine kind of like this Nordic DNA by also just using the best parts of this SaaS playbook that's been perfected. I think mainly in in in, um, in San Francisco, and you've been able to build this global company. Um, I think I. Re- remember hearing you on one other podcast talking about how Nordic companies are, are sold off too quickly, startups. Um, you're obviously not going that route. The plan is to do an IPO and to become a standalone company. Um, do you think that, do you think that, um, why is it so, does this speak to kind of like maybe the immaturity about go to market and or maybe create a product, but then we want someone come in to come in, one of the big boys to come in and take it over and do it properly? Or, or do you think that we're, it's it, it, this kind of attitude is changing and, and maybe the capital markets are also changing where we'll, we will have more standalone software companies in the Nordics and Europe and, and there will be less acquisitions of those at, at earlier stages. I think it is changing. I mean, I think now that playbook of you know, started here and then moved to the US or London or somewhere else, I, 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 that, that's, that's not happening to the same extent anymore. And I think that's fantastic. Um, so, um, yeah, and I, I remember, you know, I was living in the UK and like, you know, I, I read in, in the, in the guardian, you know, like king.com is, I think they were going public in a UK based king.com is going public or something like that. And, and I was like, well, it's a Swedish company, <laughs> but they were at, I put the head office in, in, uh, in London uh, and you know so on. so, but I think you know now with like Spotify and Klarna, there's some you know really fantastic companies that are that are being built to last in Stockholm. And, uh, I think it's great. So I think it's gradually changing, and I think that creates a whole ecosystem of if companies get acquired, maybe they get acquired locally and help build a local ecosystem. Yeah. So I think I think I, I think it's it's now it's the time to to. To see uh, that you know the end, but but it's hard as a SaaS company. You kind of got to get get across that sort of hundred million dollars in annualized recurring revenue, and that's a pretty big number. Uh, you know, just getting getting back twenty million. I think that a lot of companies get stuck there. The growth rate isn't that high. You grow ten percent a year at, at twenty million in ARR. Like you're not going to get very far. You know, you got to kind of get through that at at a high velocity and then aim at the hundred million plus. And then you can be that sort of standalone larger business that can go public and it can acquire other companies. And, yeah. Do you think, why do you think that they get stuck there? Is it a question of they're not getting enough funding? Um, they don't know how to do M&A. They don't, uh, maybe this it goes back to what you mentioned about maybe that immaturity regarding go to market. What do you think about the key reasons why companies get stuck and why Funnel has been able to, to go way beyond that, that threshold? I think it has a lot to do with uh, go to market. Um, I think that, you know, what 
when you start a company, the first thing you need to do is find product market fit. You should just be focused on that. And not until you have a good product market fit should you start thinking about growing the, the company at, at a rapid scale. Um, and to do that, you need to find a good um, scalable sort of go-to-market channel. And, and probably you've sort of tinkered with this while you were at product market fit and you found sort of a combination of um, product market fit for a market and a go-to-market channel. And you only need one that works and is scalable. And then all you should do is just scale that. You don't know anything else. You scale it, scale it, scale it, right? From 1 million to 5 million to 10 million. But then when you start approaching 10 million, actually at some point you got to start to think, okay, well, how, how far is this go-to-market channel going to take me? And you know, to, to, to sort of diversify it, broaden it, rebuild it, and, and, and make sure it's going to take you to 20 and beyond at a, at a good, strong uh, growth rate. And I think that's maybe where, where, you know, boards go there and they say, oh, you grew 70% last year. Why don't we make a plan for 80%? And everybody's just sort of spending more money doing the same thing. And nobody's sort of like actually like think, doing some deep thinking about like, how can we actually build this to last? And, and you got to do that. If, if you do that, if you can keep proving that you can do it, I think the capital is available. I mean, there's every international investor will invest in, in the Nordics now. And so, but and you, of course, got to have enough of a large market and you got to have the right strategy. You got to be differentiated and so on. So it's, it's a bunch of pieces you got to have to fit together. Yeah, that, make, that, that makes a lot of sense. Let's let's talk a little bit about AI. You recently, in the summer, I believe it was, um, you conducted a big survey among your customers about you know how they're thinking about the impact of AI. Could you talk a little bit about what were some of the, in your opinion, key findings uh, from that survey? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think essentially there were two, right? So I think the first one was that something like sixty-four percent of all marketers said that what they do or part of what they do they think over time is going to be um, taken over by AI. So there was a bit of a worry uh, that people had. Um, and, and certainly like uh, a strong need to sort of stay stay in touch with, with what's happening and up to date with what's happening, losing the latest techniques and actually a worry that, you know, um, what, what what our competitors doing, we, we need to, to make sure we do that. Um, and the other big takeaway was to do AI and do it well, AI relies on data. And, you know, that's partially why we did this survey to understand what, you know, we, we think actually um, what we do and providing a good business-ready data set is really important for um, actually be able to use AI to do your marketing. And and there was a lot of, you know, that came out strongly in the in the survey that that was very much the case. That you need more more now than ever. You need to make sure you got your data strategy in place and a good data platform for underlying what you do. Do you have any kind of uh, thoughts on what people in that sixty four percent who are you know being fearful are they uh, right to have that fear? And if so, what are kind of you know just you from your personal perspective skill sets that marketers need to acquire to not to be able to leverage? Uh, AI as opposed to being replaced by it? Um, I mean, I, I think it's going to play out different in depending on exactly what, what your role is and what we manage to automate. In general, I think it'll raise the bar for what we as, like it'll make us more productive and we will get better at what we do because we'll have better tools. But it doesn't actually necessarily mean we, we won't have a job. I think we'll do better marketing. We'll do more with less and 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 so on. So I think that's the general case. I, I also think we're still in the early innings of AI. And it's easy to see a demo and go, oh, wow, it's going to have a huge impact. But there's still a lot of quirks and, and, you know, it's a difference between getting it sort of 70% right. And like the 95, 99% that you really need to, 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 to get it, to, to apply it at scale. Um, but I think just staying up 
staying really up to date, trying new things, um, and, and sort of up, upskilling. I think this probably great opportunities for the people to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, when you start playing with some of these things, you realize that uh, it feels like you know the, the the difference between the people who are not using it and people who learn to use it uh, in productivity is going to be huge. Um, just just by playing around with ChatGPT and using it to for whatever whatever kind of workflows a task you're 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 doing right now. And and you know the, like everything changes. Like the role of a performance marketer eight years ago was to change bits on keywords, right? And have long spreadsheets of keywords. And and now, you know, you kind of give broader guidelines to, for example, Google and Facebook's algorithms, and then you feed them with your first-party data that Google and Facebook don't have access to to make them make smarter decisions on your behalf, right? So it's a different, it's changed. You get your head around that and your role changes. And then, you know, actually, you uh, uh, your your overall role is still to drive, you know, conversions for your company um, and paying for those. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, final question for you, Frederick. You've now been the CEO here for um, for how long has it been for Funnel? Um, so we started building Funnel two thousand fourteen. Okay, so coming and then up, we on... had a previous company before that. So in total, it's probably around twelve years. Okay, so that's a, a sizable, a sizable period of time, and obviously your role has changed massively. The company has changed massively. You went from working very close to the product. Now you're managing teams of hundreds of people. Um, first, first question, or, or first part of the question would be: How have you been able to grow in your role to grow with the company? That's, I guess, fairly uncommon at that massive like a, a scale. And um, second question: How have you been able to stay motivated? And, and not you know not not look for something else to do with 12 years in like what keeps you excited about about keeping keeping uh to keep pushing forward yeah that's a really good question so when it comes to growing i mean i i would say that the number one thing about being successful with a startup is being great at learning at like the the pace you can learn determines to a large extent the success because you've got to learn a lot of stuff you know you come very i mean with you know before funnel i had started an e-commerce company in um, the uk so i and i part of that i had a a role of like cmo so i'd kind of understood the the problem statement we were doing that that helped but putting it all together, like you got to kind of learn the industry you're in that you're often you're trying to change an industry. You got to learn what it is and then you got to learn what customers want to get product market fit. And you're going to learn how to find a what uh, go to market channels work. And then, you know, you got to learn how to hire people and set a good culture. And you just going to learn, learn, learn. <laughs> so I think just having that ability to quickly learn, is, I think, is absolutely key. And, and it sort of never ends. It's incredible how many development stages a company can go through. Like every six months, like it changes and there's new sort of broad challenges and new, you know, new development stage. <laughs> it's, and it's the, same, it's the same as with kids. Like they go through so many, you know, every couple of months they change. You could never make all this stuff up. Um, it, it, it's so multifaceted. And it's the same. So I think that lear- just that, Absolute learning capability, I think, is important. So how do you learn that? I mean, one, you do it through talking to people and customers and all this stuff. But, you know, I I like to also read blog posts. I like to listen to podcasts. And I really like to speak. I think that's the biggest one for me is to just network with and speak to other CEOs of growth companies and learn from them and their businesses. Um, to me, that's uh, you know that's hugely valuable, um, and um, and and that's probably what I've learned the most from. Got it. Do you have just out of because uh, one thing I've heard and read is that CEO, especially for kind of a growth company, is a very lonely job. 
because you're facing all these challenges. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of stakeholders to manage, and you're the only one in the company trying to keep it all together. So do you kind of have a support group of CEOs and in growth companies that you guys talk talk to or, or um, anything along those lines? Yeah, I have I have a, a CEO group um, that that we actually sort of meet monthly and 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 chat. It sort of partially acts like that, and then I have a couple of CEOs that I know locally that you know I meet meet up with for lunch uh, regularly, and 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 also it's really helpful. And it's kind of like you know you do it for a number of years, so you see each other grow. I mean, I think it's actually really really rewarding. Um, now then, just to answer your other question, which was, you know, how do you keep motivated? You know, I think your role um, changes a lot as a company grows. Um, originally, you know, you're very into the details of, especially me coming with a product background into the product and the details. And, and then as it grows, you know, you get a lot of work with the organization. It's a different type of job. And you kind of like, I mean, I like cre creativity and creative work. I think I've, I've found, I've gone from, you know, reveling in the creativity of building a product to actually the creativity of designing an organization and a business model and a system. My company is really a system and making, tinkering with it and making it all kind of work. And I, I think that's sort of what I, what I found a lot of, uh, you know, that gives me a lot of, of uh, satisfaction and that I, that I find uh, re really interested. And, and then just, you know, the opportunity to see the people in the company come in young, maybe their first job and then growing. And, you know, we have some people who come in and, you know, we've given them a chance. They didn't have a lot of education. We believed in them. And, and you know, just seeing them evolve and grow has been fantastically satisfying. Yeah, I, I can I can t totally see that. Uh, Frederick, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I had a bunch of questions that we didn't even get a chance to to go through, so maybe we'll have to to do a part two. But um, where do people, you know, checking out Funnel? Of course, uh, you should mention Gendra is a Funnel partner. Um, so if you if you want help with uh, actually implementing that, um, you can contact us. You can go check out Funnel on their website. Uh, but for people who want to connect with you, is it LinkedIn the best place to go? Yes, LinkedIn is the social media where, where I'm the most active. So uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Okay, I'll put a link uh, in, in, in the show notes. Once again, Frederick, thank you so much. Uh, good luck with everything you're doing at, uh, at Funnel. And uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of The Growth Pod on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts.